By the time that we get to Exodus chapter 32, God has already brought Israel out of slavery, given his law so they could live holy lives, and has instructed them to build a giant tent called a tabernacle so that he could live among his people. Moses, he's been up on the mountain for about 40 days, and that mountain is shrouded in fire and in smoke. And after more than a month, the people of Israel are getting pretty impatient. They gather around Aaron, a phrase that always refers to some sort of hostile act in the Old Testament, and they demand to have gods made for them. We don't know what happened to Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt. Now, there are a few inconsistencies in Israel's thinking. First, they attribute their salvation to the man, Moses, instead of God. And then they demand that Aaron make gods for them. We're not quite sure if they were completely rejecting God or just wanting to make an image of him. They ask for gods, plural, but in verse 5, we're told that they are going to celebrate a feast to the Lord, that is, Yahweh. So here's God. He brought Israel to himself, but here they are following the typical pattern of mankind by going the opposite direction. Moses had risen up early in the morning in chapter 24 to honor God, but these people rise up early in the morning to celebrate their idol. Just like you are what you eat, you also become what you worship. If you look at Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, it reads that the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 135 is telling us that when we worship something, we are actively being conformed to their image. And Israel forms the image of a calf and then becomes a dumb cow. In verse 9, they're told that they have stiff necks like the stubborn ox, and other Old Testament passages referring to this incident also compare Israel to an ox. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 through 18, God condemns Israel's idolatry and describes them as fat cows kicking against their owner. Hosea 4, 16 through 17 makes the same point, saying, Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. And because they weren't worshiping God, they weren't becoming anything like him. God had wanted them to be a holy people, different from the world around them, but instead they rise up to play. It's likely a sexual metaphor since we find that same word describing Isaac playing or laughing with his wife in Genesis chapter 26 verse 8. Israel is no longer a holy nation of priests, but a nation running recklessly after idols. Now God is understandably not happy. He immediately begins to distance himself from Israel in verse 7. They're no longer his chosen people, but instead he says to Moses, these are your people whom you brought out. It's kind of like when a mother and father are saying, it's your kid who did this. I had nothing to do with it. So God says that he's going to kill them. Now this bothers people. How could God be so quick to destroy his people and do it so easily? The very same people that he saved. Well, God is not just a merciful, redeeming God, but he's also a just one. If God wasn't just, then evil would be running unchecked. The people of Israel, they had taken an oath in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 through 8, and they had agreed to the terms of God's covenant, and God is going to hold them to it. Even after Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf and prays for Israel, we have the tribe of Levi putting 3,000 Israelites to death, and a plague goes through the camp at the end of the chapter. This is what sin leads to. A holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence, 
and he is going to make steps to eradicate it. And the people of Israel have no excuse. Aaron certainly tries his best to wiggle out of it. He lays blame on the people, saying, they're the ones who made me do it. And then he tells Moses, he just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. But we can't ever excuse our sin, and we can't ever say we don't know what we're doing or what the punishment is. We need to have that same ruthless intolerance of sin as the Levites did in verse 29. In verse 29, Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. We cannot expect to be close to sin and its sources and still maintain our close relationship to God. Even Jesus says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We cannot tread both sides of the fence trying to have the best of the sinful life while also maintaining that holy relationship with God. But judgment is not the last word in this chapter. This is going to be a hard lesson for Israel as they begin their walk with God, but even in the midst of so much sin, they're still near a gracious and merciful God. Moses is able to intercede on behalf of the people, and God actually listens. This is one of the most astounding passages in the Bible, and it really demonstrates to us the power of prayer. It's very easy for us to assume God knows everything, God has his ways, and God is going to follow God's will. But God had told Moses, this is what I'm going to do. But Moses interceded. Moses prayed to God. He talked to him. He said, please, God, do not do this. And God relented. Never forget that even among all the sin and troubles of our lives, we have a God who listens to us. We have a God who is trying to save us.